Welcome to The Bounce. I am Bob Lapine. Glad you're along with us for this episode. I am a pastor, a local church pastor. I pastor Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. I also serve on the board of directors for the Great Commission Collective. I know many of you who listen are a part of GCC. GCC is a church planting and church strengthening organization. We have a common gospel framework for what we do. And if you're unfamiliar with GCC, you can go to our website, gccollective.org to find out more. Let me just say, if you're a pastor of a local church, and you're looking to be linked together in ministry with other local churches, like-minded churches who have a common commitment to the truth of the gospel, find out more about the Great Commission Collective when you go to gccollective.org. And if you think your church should be alongside GCC, let's get in touch with each other. Let's, Let's talk and see if it's a fit. Again, the information is available on the website gccollective.org. I should mention here, our president, Dave Harvey, has just written a book that's called Stronger Together. And it makes the case for the fact that those of us who pastor local churches that are independent, non-denominational churches, uh, we are stronger as local churches when we are united together with other like-minded churches. That's what GCC is all about. And uh, I'd commend Dave's new book to you, Stronger Together. Uh, There's information about that in the show notes for today's program, or you can just Google Stronger Together by Dave Harvey and get it wherever you get your books. On today's episode of The Bounce, we're going to uh, let you hear a conversation I had several months ago with Dr. Wayne Grudem. Many of you know Dr. Grudem. He is a, uh, a professor of theology. He has written a classic systematic theology that so many of us have used and benefited from through the years. Uh, Dr. Grudem is on the faculty at Phoenix Seminary. I was able to sit down with him in front of a, a an audience to talk about his life, his ministry, um, his current challenge with Parkinson's disease that he's been dealing with for for many years, to talk about how and why he moved from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago to Phoenix Seminary as a a sacrificial act for his wife and her health. We talked about his complementarian convictions and where he sees the church in our day and whether he believes that that revival is is coming. It was an open-ended conversation and one that I really enjoyed. I think you'll enjoy it as well. So here is that conversation with Dr. Wayne Grudem. I knew you before I met you because of your systematic theology, because of your writing, and because of how you had impacted my life through those things. And then we got to know one another for a season. Wayne and Margaret spoke at the Weekend to Remember Marriage Getaways that Family Life hosted. We've done a number of interviews together. When we were working on our video series, The Art of Marriage, we thought one of the stories we need to tell other couples is the story of how Wayne and Margaret Grudem came from... Chicago to Phoenix, because it is a, it's a living picture of biblical truth. So I'm going to start with that and have you retell that story. You were in a career at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, one of the top theological training schools. Your profile was rising. Your books were coming out. People were coming to Trinity to study with Dr. Grudem but there was an issue in your marriage and in Margaret's life that was causing you to think, is, 
is Trinity where I can stay, right? Margaret had been in an auto accident uh, a few years prior to this. She had some chronic pain issues in her back and neck. And some friends said, um, you know, we have a house in Mesa, Arizona, suburb of Phoenix, a second home. If you'd ever like to go there for a vacation, we'd like to use it. And so we thought, hmm, January in Chicago or? <laughs> <laughs> and um, we came to Mesa and Margaret felt better. And so a few months later, we came back and she felt better again. And we began to find out that the chronic pain issues was aggravated by cold and humidity. And Chicago is cold in the winter and humid in the summer. I said, well, you know, Margaret, I'd be willing to move here, but I'm only trained to do one thing, and that is teach at a seminary or college. And there aren't any seminaries here. Well, Margaret got out the yellow pages. You remember the yellow pages? And she was looking at educational institutions, and she said, there's something here called Phoenix Seminary. I said, oh, <laughs> I'd never heard of it. <laughs> we drove over and visited it, and I looked at the library, and I said, Margaret, I have more books than this. <laughs> <laughs> One thing led to another, and <clears throat> just... I called the seminary academic dean, Steve Tracy, to see if there might be an opportunity for me to have a job here. Now, can you imagine being the academic dean at Phoenix Seminary, and Wayne Grudem calls said, might you have a position open for me? And, he and did. <laughs> he did. <laughs> so the question was whether <clears throat> we should accept it. We said, we talked and talked and talked and talked and prayed and prayed and prayed. And it set a day in which we were going to decide what to do. And um, two things happened. One, we were outdoors on a beautiful day, and I said, Margaret, do you think if I had the pain in my body that you have, that I would want to move here? I decided to move here. She said, yes. <laughs> it wouldn't take you a minute. <laughs> it was that day or the next day. I was reading in my regular pattern of reading through the New Testament, uh, chapter in the Old Testament, chapter in the New Testament. I came to Ephesians 5. 26 or so where it says even so husbands should love their wives as their own bodies and the Lord convicted me that if I would move here for the sake of my body I should do it for the sake of Margaret's mm -hmm. so I had been um, you know in academic world you're assistant professor then associate professor and then full professor I was a full professor with tenure and department chairman and had 1500 students and 65 faculty members at Trinity and Phoenix Seminary had 250 students and nine faculty members, eight or nine. So it was moving to a different place. The remainder of the story is that Phoenix Seminary has been just a wonderful place for me to teach. And um, there's been a lot of blessing. And they've given me time to write so that I've been able to write many more books than I would have at Trinity teaching full time. They gave me a reduced load and extra student help. And it's been wonderful. So we've been here 20 years. And we have been... And the body of Christ at large has been the beneficiary of the fact that while you may not have had as many students in the classroom, you have blessed so many more of us mm. with your writing. You're working now, you said, on updating your First Peter commentary? Yes, it came out in 88, I believe, a commentary on First Peter. And I'm, well, it was based on the Revised Standard Version, and now uh, I'm switching all, all of it to the ESV. There have been 20 commentaries or more published since 88 on First Peter. So there's some work in revising. Will you be? You'll be adding a little bit? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> like how many pages, do you think? Well, they have a limit. 
<laughs> it's the Tyndale, Tyndale New Testament commentary series, so they're, they're, they're not huge. <laughs> As you get to know Dr. Grudem, thorough would be an adjective that you would use to describe whatever he is involved in on a scholarly level. If, if you, you would you'd be rare to sit down and talk with him about a subject where you would say, well, what about this? And he would say, oh, I hadn't considered that or I hadn't thought about that. He's already thought about it and thought about the four different answers you could give to the argument that you were making because of the thoroughness that's just part of how God has, has made him. And I, I mentioned the ESV. The reason I asked how many people have an English Standard Version, it was really at your leadership that the English Standard Version happened. Well, and also Lane Dennis, the president of Crossway Books, he had a key role because Crossway was a publisher. Yes, I've been on the 12-member translation committee since the beginning. Why was that a burden on your heart to, to bring the ESV about? Um, there are a number of good translations in English for which I'm thankful to God. But many of my colleagues and peers in the academic world were using the Revised Standard Version, which came out in 46 and 52, because it was more literal, more word-for-word -word translation, but had smoother English rhythm and cadence uh, than the New American Standard. And on the other hand, the NIV was um, in some places more thought-for-thought thought rather than word-for-word. Word. And we thought it might be possible to take the RSV, Revised Standard Version, as a base and produce a translation that had the clarity of the NIV and the accuracy of the New American Standard, mm. kind of between those two. And uh, that was, our goal was to follow in the essentially literal tradition of the King James Version and the Revised Standard Version. The Revised Standard Version wasn't popular with evangelicals broadly because it um, had some theological liberalism that crept in. Some of the messianic passages in the Old Testament were obscured. I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but uh, right. yeah. okay, well, I won't. Again, we're the beneficiaries of this, all because you wound up in Phoenix rather than being in Chicago to help your wife's pain. Yeah, um, the ESV came out the same time I came to, to, to Phoenix. To Phoenix yeah. The, the thing about your story and your move to Phoenix that impacted me so profoundly was one of the things Dr. Grudem has been known for throughout his academic career is advocating for the fact that what the Bible teaches is that the role of a husband and wife in a marriage should be a complementary role. A husband has a specific role to play, a wife has a specific role to play, and those should go together. There's leadership and there's submission. And in this story, it, it would be so characteristic of people who are critical of Dr. Grudem's view to think, well, the way a complementarian would handle this would be to look at his wife and say, you just need to submit. Instead of doing what Dr. Grudem did, which is saying, I need to love my wife and lay down my life for her. And I think it's just a beautiful illustration of, of the, it takes the caricature of complementarity and says this, this, that's not how it's to be lived out. It's to be lived out in a fully orbed way. And you demonstrated that. Let me say also, Bob, that in that process, Margaret has just been an amazing, wonderful wife for me. Mm. And just been a joy. Mm. Uh, and um, Margaret's approach to this was, she, she was reading 
reading books like the story of Mary Slessor, was it? Sacrificed her life as a single woman going to, as a missionary to Africa. Took her coffin with her when she went. And Margaret's approach to this was, when God has given you a ministry here at Trinity in Illinois, I can put up with the pain. I think you should stay and carry out this ministry. She wasn't saying, I want to go. But I was saying, Margaret, for your sake, I think we should go. And we couldn't agree. We were out walking one day, and she said, I've made up my mind what to think about this. And I said, what? She said, you should make the decision. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so we've been married 52 years, but we've known each other for 61 years. Met in junior high school. Junior high, yeah. yeah. Who, noticed, who noticed who first? Oh, I noticed her first. There were too many boys chasing her. <laughs> but I won. <laughs> when did you first realize that you had what was eventually diagnosed as Parkinson's? Uh, December of 20, uh, December of um, 2015. And how did you, what were the symptoms? My handwriting became less, less accurate. I'd mess up words when I was writing. Harder to button shirts. Fine motor coordination with my hand was, and a little tremor in my left hand, not much. I made a list of things and went to my doctor and he said, the symptoms are consistent with Parkinson's. And he sent me to a movement specialist, a neurologist, and she said, I could diagnose you from across the parking lot wow. because of how you walk. When a doctor says to you, the symptoms are consistent with Parkinson's, yeah. what was going on in your heart and your soul when you heard that? I'm not sure that I remember precisely, Bob, at that moment. I think there was a calmness that the, that the Lord gave me. It was a sense of my time, my, my life is in God's hands, and I want to serve him as long as I'm able to do so. The Lord gave me peace through the whole situation, and I still feel it. In the midst of that peace, have you... You've had to wrestle with the reality of loss, loss of function, loss of things that used to come easy that don't come as easy anymore? It's not been that difficult. I, I have to say that there are a lot of people have been praying for me. I have a prayer memo that goes to certain friends, and uh, John Piper is one of them, and he, I put it on the prayer memo. I said, I have Parkinson's and I'm at peace. And he wanted to publish it on the Desiring God website, which he did. So a lot of people began praying for me, and I'm thankful. And it's been six years now, next month. And my Parkinson's doctor, who's the head of the Parkinson's unit at Barrow Neurological Clinic here in Phoenix, she says that I am in the 5% of patients least affected by Parkinson's after five years. Wow. I have some medication that I take, but it's not the strong dopamine that is kind of standard but difficult medicine for Parkinson's patients. How much of your acceptance of this diagnosis do you think is related to your personality and temperament, and how much of it do you think is related to the, the Spirit of God giving you a supernatural peace that passes understanding? I think 100% is the Spirit of God. I believe God's Word. I believe my times are in His hand. My life is in His hand. <clears throat> I want to be faithful to him and serving him as long as I can and being a good husband to Margaret and father to our children and grandfather to our grandchildren.
I have, I have a tremor sometimes in my left hand. It's a little bit tonight. It's still hard to button my shirts, but Margaret helps me. Um, and the handwriting isn't very clear, but I can make it work. It's, it's an inconvenience, but I don't think of it now as a major disability, Bob. Do you still handwrite manuscripts? No. I wouldn't think so. I, I dictate. Okay. With uh, naturally speaking software. Oh, okay. And it pr produces some interesting words sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I was dictating answers to email one day, <clears throat> and Margaret, I was just dictating an answer to my teaching assistant, <clears throat> who's a weightlifter. He was saying, could I come at four instead of three this afternoon to your house? And I said on the dictation screen, sure, that's fine. And then um, Margaret was just going out the door, and she said, bye. And I said, love you. <laughs> and I hit send. <laughs> I called him right away. <laughs> Have there been no dark nights of the soul in the midst of this diagnosis? Really, there haven't been, Bob. I just, the Lord is good. He, he'll give me strength for what he wants me to do. There's another symptom is I'm, my voice, I, I lose volume in my voice, but I have a microphone in the classroom, so hmm. I mean, life goes on. Writing and speaking is your livelihood, and both are affected by this. To some extent, they're slowed down. I want to ask you... Has it been 30 years since the Blue Book came out? I think it was uh, 88, 89. You know what I'm talking about when I talk about the Blue Book? There's a book that came out in the late 80s called Recovering Manhood and Womanhood. That Biblical, man. Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, written by Dr. Grudem and John Piper and others who contributed mm -hmm. to it. It was a seminal volume in the midst of what these men and others recognized was the beginning of a drift in the church, in the body of Christ, away from what had been a commonly understood biblical understanding of issues related to gender. They wrote this book as a way to say, we, we need to recover the essential truths of this. This is not just some side issue. This is at the core of what, is, what, what the church needs to stand on. And it was a watershed book that... that uh, I think held back the flood for a season, and now I'm looking and going, but it seems like the dam has been breached in some ways in the last 15 or 20 years. You're observing the breaks in the, in the dam in the church, right? I mean, I'm encouraged by a number of things as well. So we wrote something called the Dan Danvers Statement. It argued that men and women are equal in value and, and personhood before God but different in our roles in marriage and the church. There's a male leadership role that is reserved for men, leadership role reserved for men in marriage and in the church. Yet we recognize that there'd been a failure to value and appreciate and encourage women's ministries in a wide variety of areas, uh, like Nancy's ministry is today. Um, so, um, so we published this. I think we won the exegetical arguments, the arguments about interpretation of biblical passages. Not that everybody was persuaded, but I think that the, 
the material is there, it's, it's, it's what the Bible teaches, you can't get around it. And denominationally, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest denomination in the United States, the Presbyterian Church in America, the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, and hundreds, probably thousands of independent Bible churches um, and other groups have adopted a complementarian position. That's the word we use for it. It is still the dominant position in the whole executive board of the Evangelical Theological Society now is uh, six complementarians and one egalitarian. So, I mean, it's, it's dominant in central Bible-believing evangelicalism. But the society has gone entirely the other direction. Society doesn't know the difference between a boy and a girl, which elementary students, school students can figure out <laughs> easily. So there's much confusion about gender identity and gender roles, but the Bible isn't confusing. Why is this more than a secondary issue in theology? Because what we see is when churches or parachurch organizations give in to the culture and say, we'll have women pastors and uh, there's no headship for the husband in marriage. They use 25 different approaches that I put together in a book called Evangelical Feminism, A New Path to Liberalism. But every one of those approaches undermines the authority of scripture. And once that is undermined, the slippery slope is real and groups and denominations begin then to toy with the idea that maybe faithful homosexual relationships are, are acceptable or at least we shouldn't say they're wrong. And then maybe homosexuality is acceptable and the Bible's outmoded on that. And then more and more there's an erosion of biblical authority. So it is a battle point today still uh, for whether a church believes the Bible or not. If Margaret and I are going to out of town to visit another city and we're going to be out there on a Sunday and we want to look for a church, I'll look, look at the website and I want to see what the leadership is. If it's all men, I think they're, they're believing the Bible because people who believe the Bible are the only ones who have all male leadership and eldership of a church. It's a litmus test in a way. And those who would look at your convictions and say, you're trying to limit or repress or squash women and their giftedness in the, in the church, your response to that? Look at Nancy. I mean, I'm thankful for her ministry to women. Mm. Um, and I'm not squashing. I mean, that's, it's a wonderful ministry. And Mary Cassian, who is on, she's been part of Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood yes. from the beginning or from very early on. So we're not, but, but we don't want either men or women to have, to be pushed into situations that God isn't going to favor and bless. Uh, no one should want that. So when you look at the state of the evangelical church in America today, the state of uh, American culture today, both of which I know you are a keen observer of, are you hopeful or discouraged? The first thing that comes to mind is Jesus said, I will build my church. We are living at a time in history unlike any other. Until about 1950, the largest percentage of the world that was people who read their Bible and pray every day was like 3%, and then it went up to 4%. And then from 1950 onward, 45 or 50 onward, then 5%, 6%, 7%, 8%, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14%. There's never been a movement like that, and a growth movement like that in the church or in any people movement in history. It's Latin America, Africa, and Asia so far. But I don't think God is going to forget 
Europe and North America. Mm -hmm. And uh, people say, well, there's so much sin in our culture, and there is, and it, it deserves God's judgment, but there are so many righteous, too. Um, you think of Abraham bargaining with God 50, 40, 30, 40. Does he get down to 10 or 5? I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember either. <laughs> 10, I think. <laughs> there are more than 10 righteous in this room mm -hmm. who genuinely seek to follow God. And if we had a map of the United States, we could throw a dart at it. In any city it landed on, I could go there and say, let's look at the churches. You'll find faithful Bible-believing churches growing, praying, seeking to be obedient to God. They're wonderful. Um, there's a wonderful movement of God in, in growing churches today. But overall, I'm hopeful. Wow. Do you think we need to be adjusting our mindset as faithful followers of Jesus for how we live in this culture? You know, Margaret and I have been, we're in a small group with four, other, with four couples. We would all like to join your small group. <laughs> But when I asked for prayer a couple weeks ago, it was I want to ask the Lord to increase my faith. Trust him for him to bring good out of the situations that we pray about. Because sometimes I think I'm, I'm, I'm praying and not having much faith. But that has to come from the Lord working in our hearts. I think that revival will come only if the church prays and the Holy Spirit is pleased to bless us. I'm concerned about a hesitancy to preach about sin, and especially about uh, sexual sin, but also truthfulness in speech. Lying is just endemic in the culture. The controversy over race is difficult for the church right now. Yeah. Acts 17 says, God made from one man every nation of the earth. And we're all descended from Adam and Eve, and we're all made in God's image. And I don't think we should evaluate people on the basis of color. And I'm concerned about the, f the effect of gender confusion on our children. I know if you're aware of the book by Abigail Schreier called Irreversible Damage. Yes. And then another by Ben Shapiro called The Authoritarian Moment. Um, big tech is just dominating our, our thinking more and more. So that concerns me. Concerns me for our grandchildren growing up in a culture that has so much sexual confusion. So as you list those, I want to come back to what you said before that, you're hopeful. Because I think Jesus continues to build his church. Yes. And thousands of Christians, millions of Christians continue to pray, your kingdom come, may your kingdom come. It's a prayer that God's kingdom would come, his reign and rule in people's hearts would expand through the world. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, may you please work so that as, as people on angels in heaven obey you, so that people on earth will obey you in the same way as they do in heaven, fully, wholeheartedly, completely. Well, is God not going to answer those prayers? What a uh, treat to be able to sit down with Dr. Wayne Grudem and to interact with him. So many of us have been well-shaped and formed in our thinking by Dr. Grudem's writing. One of the things I love about his systematic theology is that every a uh, section of the theology ends with lyrics to a hymn because Dr. Grudem says, if the study of these things does not bring about a doxological response from you, then something's wrong. We're not studying these things simply to grow in our head knowledge, but it should 
cause our hearts to to well up with praise and worship for God. We've got a, a link to Dr. Grudem's Systematic Theology in our show notes, along with links to a couple other titles from Dr. Grudem, so be sure to check that out. And you can also leave comments for us Uh, like us, subscribe to this podcast when you do. It helps spread the word, pass the word along to other pastors you know who you think would benefit from conversations like this. Again, GCC, the Great Commission Collective, is all about planting churches and strengthening leaders. And I hope this podcast is helping that be a reality for you in your ministry. Next time up on The Bounce, we're going to talk with a pastor from Atlanta, Dehati Lewis, about how churches can develop a a broader vision for multiculturalism, how we can think rightly about racial issues in the church, and what it looks like to be uh, a church that is actively pursuing a a gospel-shaped inclusivity when it comes to how we partner with one another. That comes up next time, a conversation with Dehati Lewis. I hope you'll be with us next time on The Bounce.